Attention HR professionals. Are you tired of dealing with poor performance from your managers? Are you sick of having managers run to you for every single little problem? Would you like to build the confidence and competence of your management team? If so, then contact Boss Builders. At Boss Builders, we specialize in building up the skills and confidence of your organization's managers. We do this through our popular Driving Results on-site training programs, our signature program, the Video-Driven Boss Builder Academy, and we even license our course materials so you and your internal training staff can get those managers confident and competent. For more information on how we can help you improve the performance of your organization's managers, contact us today at www.thebossbuilders.com or at 931-221-2988. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you who are in the role and are struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the transition to management. You know, on our show, we try to give you lots of boss builders, people that for a living actually help people become better bosses. But we've also actually been able to interview some great bosses. Episode number 29, of course, with Greg Nelson is my personal favorite, but I've got another good one for you today. Now, the beauty of this is that you are going to hear from someone who has been where you are, someone who has been put into a role without any formal training, very few qualifications. And he not only survived without help, by the way, but he thrived. His name is James Meadows. He is the director of IT for a very large company in the Middle Atlantic region. He's very successful, and he is going to share his journey with you today. He's going to talk about what it was like to be in a role overwhelmed. He's going to talk about what it's like to be able to do multiple things and still have to be a great boss. He's going to talk about the personal cost including your health. And all of this is done so that you know how to avoid some of the things he had to go through and do a good job of it. James will talk about his journey. He'll talk about how things will change for you as you make that transition to supervisor. He'll give you important qualities of both the boss and the leader. And he'll even give you some techniques on how you can develop your employees. It's a great conversation, lasts about an hour but it's definitely one that you're going to want to sit and take notes for. So without any further delay, let's meet our special guest, James Meadows. James Meadows, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mac. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is great. Uh, we met through a mutual friend of ours, and uh, one of the things we like to do on the Boss Builder podcast, and, and most of our episodes feature people we consider to be boss builders, those who might be authors or speakers or consultants. But the other group that I really want to have, because I think that's valuable too, are people who are considered to be great bosses, which means you've been referred by somebody. And so in your case, James, you were referred to me through a mutual contact of ours, and she said, I think James would be great on the podcast as someone who actually is the boss and is good at it. And so that's why you're here today. So before we dig into these questions, um, please share something about yourself and kind of how you got here. Sure. Uh, I, I guess personally, uh, I'm married. I have a wife and, and four kids. The, uh, the youngest is eight and the uh, oldest is 17 or just turned 18, actually. So uh, 
uh, got kids in college now and, and kids still in elementary school. So that keeps me pretty busy at home. Um, but as far as my career, um, if you go all the way back uh, during college, I, I kind of got into working in computer labs in school and then managed to get a job at the local hospital working in IT. So um, as I got closer to graduation, I talked to my boss about maybe a full-time job. Um, didn't look like it was in the cards. So um, when I graduated, uh, I, I got a computer science degree, which basically uh, qualifies me to be a programmer and maybe go on to grad school. And uh, I was more than done with school at that point. So uh, I found a job as a programmer locally. And in retrospect, it sounds pretty boring. Uh, it, was, it was a company that uh, basically wrote software that interfaced with uh, various measurement and hardware equipment, mostly in the coal industry. So uh, they would read RFID tags and know when train cars went by. Uh, they'd read data off of scales to know uh, what went down the belt line. And uh, I did that for a while and found it uh, extremely boring. Um, and, and they did a, I guess it was a life lesson for me. They did a pretty poor job of, of integrating me into the company. Basically they brought the new young guy in, uh, threw me at a computer and, and gave me a project that was all my own. Uh, I was actually working on a, a project for a chemical company. So, uh, uh, that really didn't interest me. And, uh, after about a month or month and a half, uh, I was able to go back to the hospital where I'd worked as a student and, uh, did that for a little while. And, um, then from there, moved into a role with a, a local IT firm. And that one was was interesting in that I got to do just about everything. I did sales, I did consulting, I uh, set up computers. Uh, and, and this was, mind you, in 1999. So this was the right in the lead up to the end of the world Y2K that was coming at us. So uh, we, we stayed busy. Um, it, it was nice some days, uh, but I, I'd gotten recently married and uh, there were days where I went in at eight o'clock in the morning and came home the next day and wow. it wasn't, wasn't even planned. So, you know, 26 hour shifts and a, a new wife's not a good fit necessarily. Um, so um, at this point, I'm maybe a year out of college and uh, I've got a great technical background, a lot of good experience, uh, but I'm on like my fourth job and starting to get burnout on this one. And the, the same hospital that I'd worked for, it had some change in management. And I happened to run into the new CFO and she asked if I might be interested in coming there to take over the department. So uh, 24 years old, no training, no schooling to prepare me for it. I'm suddenly the manager of a department and um, had two uh, IT um, guys that were part-time students at the local college. And um, I was theoretically in charge of data processing. Uh, that was two ladies who had been at the hospital longer than I'd been alive. And uh, I learned pretty quickly that they sort of did what they wanted and it didn't matter what I said. And so uh, that, that was a good lesson for me um, in learning how to deal with, I, I believe you had a, a podcast recently about uh, dealing with the different generations and, and I didn't do so well on that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I made it about a year there and uh, a buddy of mine told me to a uh, local college was looking for a, an IT director and, and convinced me to apply for it. I took the job and I spent five years there and uh, that, that one was quite a bit different because I had a bachelor's degree and in a few years I was actually developing and delivering undergraduate courses. Uh, I was getting my hands in a lot of things that I really didn't think I would get into going into that job. Um, and I would say in retrospect, in my five years in that job, I probably wrote the book on being a bad manager, uh, a bad boss, a bad leader. I got stuff done. And I, I know you like to, to, to reference the uh, triangle with the three sides on it. And, and boy, I did real good at that one. And the other two, I really didn't know or care about. <laughs> um, 
I, I was burning my candle at both ends. Uh, I expected my team to do the same, and uh, we got a lot done. But uh, after a few years, I was really getting burned out, and I felt like there was really no progress for me there. And, and, and like I say, in retrospect, a lot of that was my own fault, but it, I didn't really have a mentor. I didn't have any training. So I felt like I'd kind of bumped up against a wall and uh, a uh, public utility here in the state was hiring an IT director. So that's really a, an opportunity that doesn't come along too often. And I figured I should take advantage of it. So um, they offered me the job and I took it. And it was really an interesting time for them because they had been part of a, a larger organization and were recently sold to private investors. So um, during that time that they were part of that larger entity, all of the uh, administrative type departments had been combined and pulled out of the small departments. So uh, now they suddenly had to build an accounting group, an HR group, an IT group, uh, a safety group, a training group. And, and so I came in and, and basically I had one IT employee and uh, I was gifted a few others who had historically been in IT or data processing at some point, and, and we went to work. Um, I was warned coming in that um, this job was going to be hell and that any sane person wouldn't take it. And <laughs> the first year was crazy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I ordered servers, uh, I installed servers, I ordered data circuits and networking equipment, installed it. Uh, I managed implementation of financial system, did the data conversion, um, worked with our ex-parent company to sever our connections. Uh, but we also uh, had some uh, long-term arrangements with them for a lot of our back office stuff, like call center, billing, um, collections, order completion. So we had to continue to make that work and support it. And um, I was 29 years old, the youngest person in the corporate office, and I was running the IT department for the state's largest natural gas utility. Exciting stuff, but... Uh, <laughs> The reality was I still didn't know how to be a manager. I mean, you know, I, I was good at doing IT stuff. I was good at getting work done. And um, luckily I had a small group and, and for the first time I had a real HR department. Uh, my boss uh, is also the head of HR here. So um, he kind of, uh, I guess, enforced some of the things that I'd never had a, never had experience with at some other jobs. Uh, you know, previous jobs, if I needed to hire somebody, once I got approval to do it, I wrote the job description I contacted the newspaper or posted it online. I reviewed the resumes. I interviewed them. I made the offers. I contacted the, the people that, that weren't going to get the job. I, mean, I, I did all that end to end. And so coming here, you know, having an actual HR group that did that stuff was nice. But on the flip side, you know, the, the what you call protect the house, I, I didn't have experience with that either. And suddenly I had to, had to learn what the expectations were and, and you know, how to live within that. Um, but you know, we we did we did get the technical work done. We slowly started. Uh, I wrote job descriptions. Uh, we did hire a few people, and um, in a few years, I was able to to uh, work with my boss to kind of start addressing some of my weaknesses. Start doing more than just being a technical guy, and uh, start developing my team. And then I was able to expand my influence uh, outside of the IT group, which is something I've. Um, I guess, intentionally worked on the last maybe five or six years uh, of not being an IT guy, but, you know, being a, a business partner, being able to to, to talk about uh, billing, be able to talk about accounting, be able to talk about the meter reading or, or field operations. And, and it took a lot of time to get there, but um, I, I think a, a dominant part of my personality that's responsible for a lot of my success and and frankly, some of my health issues that I'll talk about later uh, is is the belief that I can step into anything and become proficient pretty quickly and and, and do whatever I set my mind to, you know, and I, I kind of did that 
as I progressed through my career, I went into healthcare, I went into higher education, uh, I went into utilities, and, and I was able to do the IT work. <clears throat> but it was really a, a different sort of challenge, um, maybe six or seven years ago, when I really started focusing on trying to be a better manager and trying to be a leader as opposed to a technical guy. And um, sometimes it was scary. Um, sometimes it was, uh, you know, kind of like jumping off the bridge and not knowing what's down there. But um, I felt like that was the the path I needed to be on. And I, and I had support here, which allowed me to do it. So uh, I've been here 13 years. Uh, I came in as the IT manager, like I said, with one person. Um, progressed to general manager, and today I'm the director. Uh, I have 11 people reporting to me, and that's four direct reports that include two managers who have their own direct reports. So uh, I've got experience now developing my own managers under me, and, and, that, and that's different than developing your own employees. Um, along the way, I, I got a master's degree. Um, planned to start an MBA last year, but had to delay that just to due to the number of things that I had going on at the time, but uh, still have that on my to-do list soon. And uh, I've been able to manage projects here that, you know, five years ago, I would have never thought possible. We did a, a project related mostly to, to metering and measure, uh, measurement. And I got to lead that as about a $15 million project across three years. And it, it wasn't an IT project, you know, it was a business project. So uh, that really told me that that I've I've made a lot of success in and the leadership side of, of getting involved in things that's not just IT. Uh, but also, I've got a, a group here that I can count on uh, to do the things even when I'm not here doing it. And that's something that, you know, in years past, I didn't uh, appreciate or or uh, make the effort to necessarily get to. So I guess today I mostly manage people and projects. Uh, I manage risk. I manage budgets. Uh, I try to build the future and convince people to follow me. And uh, managed to put together a pretty good group here so we get things done. Great. Well, I love your journey because it sounds like the way you started is very typical of the people that I work with, that our company works with. One day you just get the tap and you're going to be the boss. And <laughs> you've managed to do so many things and your growth is all self-driven. It doesn't sound like anywhere really along the way until maybe just later did you have any formal development. You figured right. stuff out and so I think that makes you uniquely qualified to really answer some questions here that my my listeners really need to know. First of all, it's normal to be tossed into the role. Secondly, <laughs> it's it's also normal not to get any support whatsoever. And thirdly, it's normal. You better get the job done one way or another. You've managed Absolutely. to do, you've done all those, James. So this is this is great. I think your next career, you're going to come do some work with us. I think that'd be great. Well, unfortunately, I have the scars to show uh, all the times that I did it the wrong way. So I'm hoping that uh, maybe others can learn from my, my mistakes sooner than I did myself. Well, I would hope so, too. I, in my experience coming up through the Navy, and one thing I always remembered is, wow, you know, these people are learning how to manage on the backs of people who get managed. And, and mm -hmm. we, we wear the scars as well. So well, I'll tell you, whatever we can do to shorten the learning curve of the boss, everybody's going to be thankful. And, and I think your, your, your information will be helpful. So let's, let's get down to some, some techniques and some strategies here. So my first question for you is, all right, you've just been promoted to be the new supervisor. How is life going to change for you? Well, I, I guess first I'll say some of what I say I will probably be repetition from some of your early podcasts, uh, particularly episode 30's Kayla. I thought that was a great one. Uh, anyone that hasn't heard that should probably go back and listen to it. But 
looking at the perspective of an internal promotion, um, I think, as you said, most promotions into management are made because the employee's previous success with their technical or operational skills. So um, this new supervisor should have some capital already in the bank um, due to their previous good work. Um, they need to recognize that this is valuable. I think a lot of people don't appreciate this or they overlook it or they don't know what to do with it. Um, you, you don't want to forget this and you don't want to waste it. Uh, you don't you don't want to use it on something you'll regret, of course, but don't hesitate to take advantage of it when you need that extra chip on the table. Uh, I think of it kind of like food stored away in the freezer. You know, that, that capital is going to lose vitamins and nutrients the longer it sits there. Eventually, it's so stale that it's pretty much worthless. But when you first come into that role, you're going to have things come up. You're going to have issues where you need to pull that favor from someone or you, you need to have some understanding uh, from your boss or for someone you work with. And, and don't be afraid. Uh, to lean a little bit on some of those good deeds and some of that efforts that got you there. Now, I think a good employee who got promoted probably already has some positive relationships, both in the department and, and maybe outside of the department. Um, managing these relationships are going to be challenging. Uh, they can offer uh, kind of a clear on-ramp to uh, becoming established, uh, respected, um, but they can also be a minefield. But those first few months are going to be really tough. Uh, if you come across as letting the authority go to your head, that's going to that's going to really wreck your relationships. It's going to lose you the respect that you need. Uh, being the wuss, uh, as you said before, uh, because you're afraid to use that authority uh, means that your old friends don't get upset with you. But it's also a sure path to losing respect and becoming ineffective. Uh, showing favoritism, which is another one I know you pointed out, it, it's very difficult to avoid in some circumstances. And honestly, it can be okay. If you're in a tough spot, you need someone you know you can count on, but it can't be a regular thing. It can't be an obvious thing because you'll end up dividing your team. You'll lose your respect of what I'll call the others, everyone that's not in that group. So um, be careful with it. But uh, as I said, with you know the capital, the relationships, those are something that you bring into that that you already have. So you, when you need them, don't be afraid to use them. Um, there's going to be situations where tough love is required. Perhaps um, someone that was recently a coworker or a friend. Um, this is can be especially likely if that friend believes they um, now have a relationship they can exploit, even if unconsciously so. I mean, uh, it's easy for two guys that were friends. Uh, one guy's now the boss, and the other's not, and he just kind of assumes he's going to be able to get by with what he used to, or, or you know, you'll let things slide. Um, the supervisor has to be prepared for that going in. They have to be committed to having conversations when they arise. But again, I, I want to stress, use that history, use that relationship to your advantage. If you're respectful, if you're honest, make clear how their actions are putting you in a bind. I think you can get through that, particularly if it's someone you had a good relationship with. Um, and this next one maybe is going to be a little different from smaller organizations to larger ones, but uh, particularly in smaller organizations, you can't expect to walk away from your old job without a second thought. Um, you're going to have, maybe you're going to do both jobs for a while. Maybe you're going to carry some of that responsibility forward until someone gets cross-trained or backfilled or something. Uh, but you've got to understand that your role is changing. You're, you didn't just move into a new position with a new title and hopefully a higher rate of pay to do what you've been doing all along. Um it seems in my own personal experience, as well as conversations with others, this one seems to be one of the tougher struggles. Um, you're going to be accountable for stuff that you have to rely on other people to do. You're going to have to make sure things get done, but you're not going to be the one doing them all the time. 
and, and, that, and that's, that's really delegation, which I'll, I'll talk about later. But um, when you move into that role, you need to make sure you understand that you're going to have uh, new responsibilities that you have to do. And you may have to continue some of the old ones. And I'll use the example uh, in our department. Uh, we have a new supervisor who's been in the job for a few months. And uh, he's basically doing two jobs right now. You know, he was promoted into that role knowing that we don't have uh, anyone to backfill him yet. And, and he's juggling both of them. And I was comfortable doing that because I knew that he could. That, that's why he was. I was comfortable giving him that uh, promotion is that he's the kind of guy that will make sure this gets stuff that, excuse me, he'll make sure that the stuff gets done. And then it's my responsibility just to make sure that he's handling the load okay. Um, and I would say probably lastly, kind of to my last comment there, is don't ever think as a new manager that you're in this uh, by yourself. Um, the best case is you've got a boss who's personally invested in your success and your development. He's there for you. He's helping you. And he's taking your success or failure personally. Um, any boss worth a damn would rather spend half a day talking through issues with you than to let you flounder or make a mistake that harms your employees, your customers, the company. Um, you may have peers in the company or through other organizations, maybe previous employers, maybe acquaintances um, that, that can help you be a sounding board for some of these things, can maybe tell you experiences they've gone through. Uh, and while I feel for anyone left relying on nothing but the last option, there are plenty of books, online resources, and even great podcasts like this one. Uh, <laughs> struggling alone and ignorant is a recipe for disaster. Don't there you it. go. No, I, that's awesome. And again, the beauty of this, James, is that this this is not some management expert I'm interviewing. This is a guy that's lived it. So if you're listening to this, Absolutely. pay attention, rewind this thing and play it again. All right. So you've, you've given us your journey in the background. You've given us some of the things that you discovered in some cases the hard way. Now, mm -hmm. to do the job successfully, like any job, you need to have the right skill set. And so what skills would you recommend that a supervisor start to develop or enhance? Um, I think probably one of the most important skills for a effective supervisor is uh, interpersonal skills. Uh, I guess what today would be called emotional intelligence, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it's knowing what to say, what not to say. Uh, and perhaps knowing how to say it, um, I, I think if if you can if you can be an effective communicator uh, and understand body language, moods, things like that, then it really is. I mean, it can be quite often the difference between uh, an aloof and sensitive bastard and a well loved soothsayer. I mean, really, it, it's it's knowing personality types or recognizing them and how to how to work with them. I mean, I've had employees who were sincerely wonderful people, but they weren't particularly well liked or respected because they just sucked at communicating with people. Uh, and the good news, it's it's fixable. Um, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit here, too, about personality types, but being able to understand, um, read someone and then uh, respond appropriately is very much a learnable skill. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, delegation supervisor has to be able to effectively delegate. And it seems like that the biggest hindrance here comes down to one of two items. Either they lack comfort with the authority that they have, or they lack comfort with trusting someone else with the work for which you're now held accountable. So for the first one, I think it can take some finesse, especially for a new manager, or if you're dealing with a difficult employee, 
but ultimately everyone involved must understand and accept that you're the supervisor. They report to you. Company doesn't expect you to get a new title, paycheck, as I said, but not take on the responsibilities that come with it. Assigning and prioritizing work is almost always a job responsibility of a supervisor. If you don't do that, you're not doing your job. You have to accept that. For the second group with the lack of comfort with the, the trust and accountability, it's really an acceptance of reality. It's impossible to go your entire life without finding yourself in this type of situation somewhere. I mean, do you grow all your own food? Do, does your child go to school? Do you repair your car? Do, do you upkeep the road that you drive on? I mean, you're depending on that Mexican restaurant not putting something in the burrito the night before to get you to your important meeting the next day. You, you're always counting on other people for something. When you delegate at work, you're entrusting others with important work so that you can focus on the other tasks that you're expected to do. So wh whether it's item one or item two there, uh, I think it really is just an acceptance of this is the way this structure work. This is the expectations and you have to move forward in it. And, and I admit completely, this was one I struggled with a lot. Um, I was great at getting stuff done and I wasn't so good at letting other people do it. Um, I had a lot of comfort in myself. And so you know, I knew what I was getting and, that's just not sustainable. Uh, it, it limits what you can do. It limits what the group of people that you're responsible for can do. And um, it, it's, it's a dead end. Well, that's a, I think that's a trap. It's a trap that a lot of our folks get into because you, you, when you were the technical guy, James, people loved you, right? You could solve a problem <laughs> and you were the hero. And now you're delegating all the hero work to other superheroes. And no one sees you anymore. And, and, and that's something that that's something that new managers in particular struggle with is I used to wear this cape and do this work. Now my people are doing that. How am I succeeding? And in a, I guess, in a dysfunctional organization, uh, that's that's actually possible to, to fail that way. Uh, but in a in a functional, well-run organization, I don't have to be out there doing all these things. I have to make sure that it happens. I have to make sure that my people do what we expect them to do or, or above and beyond. And I'm recognized for that. It took me a while to get used to that. It took me a while to be okay with, I'm not getting my hands dirty over here, but look at all the stuff we got done that we couldn't have got done last year. Okay. That's a win. That That's how I win now. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Redefine what winning looks like. Well, at, at, at Boss Builders, we tend to make a distinction between boss and leader. We love to spend time with the boss, but I like asking different people their perspective. So I'm going to ask you, number one, is there a difference between being the boss and being a leader? And then uh, to follow that one, what are some important qualities the boss would have and then the leader as well? Okay. Uh, I'll say absolutely. Uh, you can be a leader without any formal authority. Uh, being a leader requires one thing, followers. Now, devil's in the details, getting and keeping the followers is the challenging part, but being a boss, as, as usually discussed here in this podcast, means that you have structural authority over people. Um, I've, met, I, I've met and know plenty of bosses who are not leaders, and I've met plenty of leaders who are not bosses. Mm. But an effective boss has to be a leader of people. You don't have to be a thought leader. You don't have to be building the future of the company or, or blazing new paths in your industry, but you have to have the respect and dedication of the people you manage. They have to want to follow you as their leader in order for you to be an effective boss. So um, 
I guess, w- what makes the uh, effective boss or an effective leader. Um, I know you, you've told some of your stories about uh, best and worst bosses. And, right. Um, I've, I've kind of thought about that too. Um, I have to be careful about how I say things here because during the past two years or during the past 18 years, I've had two bosses. Mm. So, <laughs> and it's a small world too, isn't it? That, exactly. Most of the stories I tell, it's not going to be hard to, to track it back. To, <laughs> but um, before those 18 years, I actually had uh, about five or six bosses in three years as, as I went back and forth through some of those jobs. And my very first job back at the hospital uh, was actually uh, what I would call my, my worst boss. Um, he was moved into the IT group when the previous manager left. He knew enough of the lingo to convince others that he was qualified, but he was clueless. Um, even worse, he had no self-awareness. So he regularly made a fool of himself to us, uh, to our vendors, to, to other people that, that knew. And, you know, at that time it was the boss and two college kids was the department and the two college kids, myself and a friend of mine basically ran things in the shadows, tried to keep him out of the loop so that we could do what we needed to do. Um, now me as a college kid, I was getting paid 25, 30 hours a week, probably working 50 hours or more most weeks and doing things that I wouldn't have been allowed to touch in a real IT department. It was a great learning experience. Um, but our boss wasn't helpful. We couldn't depend on him. Uh, generally, he was all—he was an overall negative to the team. Um, on the flip side of that, though, a good boss, one of the rules that you talk about is protecting the company. Absolutely. But a good boss, or I'll say a great boss, is going to protect her people. I serve as a buffer between my folks and the outside world. I'm the heavy when they need someone. Um, I run interference with other departments uh, or with vendors. Um, if they need more time, I'm the one out there making the excuses for that and giving them the cover. Um, and, and something you'll hear often is, you know, your praise should be public. Uh, your, your mistakes or criticism should be private. And, and that's absolutely true. And again, that's, that's coming back to protecting the people. Get out there and praise these people when they do something well. If something goes wrong, the department made a mistake, and that's fine. Um, a good boss is trustworthy. It doesn't mean that their employees know everything the boss is doing. You know, the boss has to have secrets. That's the way it works. But the boss's word is good. They will stand behind their comments. They'll protect their employees. They value honesty and integrity. Um, a good boss cares. And, and this goes beyond protecting their people. Uh, it includes getting to know them, taking interest in them as people. It means honestly sharing in their victories and their defeats, making exceptions to the rules when needed. It means trusting your employees to do the right thing. And this is one where I think you really see the difference between um, an average boss or supervisor and someone who's really a leader of people is when their people know that they care. That's that's what really establish, establishes the trust and the relationships. And I would say, finally, a good boss should be able to communicate these things. Having a great heart, but terrible communication skills means that your people's not going to understand you. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to appreciate you. And then you're going to feel bad for it because you think you're trying to do the right thing. Um, A leader on the other side, independent of them being a good boss, is really someone who's out there blazing a path that others want to follow. A good leader is going to need to recognize patterns, find creative solutions. They got to be able to sell people in the future that, that they're envisioning. They got to be likable enough to have followers, yet independent enough to do and say what needs done and said to move forward. And when you get a great leader who's also a boss, that makes for a wonderful organization.
And now let's take a break for a quick word from our sponsor. What do you do when you have an employee who is highly skilled and highly motivated, but is still not successful? Some of these symptoms might be a person who's abrasive to others. Maybe they're not able to effectively communicate to others. Sometimes they say inappropriate things in meetings or in a one-on-one session. You observe them being culturally insensitive or highly opinionated. Or maybe they just have a few rough edges that need to be removed in order to be successful. In these cases, training is not your best option. At Boss Builders, we recommend coaching. Our strategic partner, Wisdom Tree Coaching, provides one-on-one or group coaching to resolve focus factor problems. The ICF certified coaches at Wisdom Tree Coaching use behavioral assessments and 360 surveys to define the root issue of the problem and then co-create solutions with the client. Wisdom Tree Coaching also facilitates a popular practical course entitled Coaching as a Discipline for Managers. Your managers will get helpful and useful skills to provide a coaching approach with their direct reports to mitigate and eliminate focus issues. Remember, training fixes skill problems. The best way to fix a behavior problem is through coaching. Contact the professionals at Wisdom Tree Coaching at 304-549-4630 or you can find them online at wisdomtreecoaching.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, and it's a great distinction that you've drawn. You know, we I hear lots of definitions, but I'm telling you, James, that is that's something I can put my hands around. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> now, in your leadership journey, tell us what you're doing and have done to develop your leadership skills. You've shared your journey, so I know it's continual growth. So how are you doing that now? <laughs> sure. Um, <clears throat> I'll say I was under the incorrect impression as a starry-eyed youngster that business and perhaps life in general, is a meritocracy where the best ideas win out. And, you know, if you have the, if you have the best idea, then it gets implemented and you get to do what you want. Um, you know, you come up with something awesome, put it in front of the right people, magic happens. Uh, once I realized how wrong that is, <laughs> and actually, I guess I was a slow learner because I realized it over and over and over. Um, you know, th- then you kind of move on to disillusionment and frustration. Um, you have to fully accept the reality of the world you live in, which really makes things go so much smoother. So then I started working on improving areas where I wasn't so strong. Where did I need to work on uh, my skills, my strengths, my abilities? And I've taken uh, several personality assessments over, I don't know, the past eight or 10 years, including Mm -hmm. Myers-Briggs. And the results were eye-opening. I mean, you know, the, the whole concept of these personality assessments is they they report what you reported when you answered the questions. So, you know, it, it's not magic, but still seeing it all down in paper and, and organized nice and neat, uh, it, it was just kind of surprising how well it fit. And the implications were somewhat staggering, though. Um, just reviewing the, descriptor, the, the descriptors associated with me really told me a story about my department that I didn't want to hear. Um, but I went through the exercise and, and I did a kind of a, one of these knockoff personality assessments in my department, had everyone take it mm-hmm. and it confirmed my assumptions. Uh, all but one of my employees were pretty darn similar to me across the board. And then I wonder why the department sucks at documentation. <laughs> why are we great at fighting fires, but we can't do any planning? <laughs> Duh. I built this group that has all the same weaknesses I have. Um, 
you know, all successful sport teams have role players. Mm -hmm. I built a team of people all strong in the same areas and all weak in the same areas. And it was really because I had a massive blind spot. I wasn't self-aware enough to recognize that different personalities and styles can be just as effective or nay more so than my own style. Uh, I, you know, I, I was basically building a department of people who were similar to me. And, and that was a, that was a huge failure. Um, and I, and I realized from the, from the test or the uh, evaluation results there, I also realized that the strengths that are praised by my boss, as well as the weaknesses that he points out were laid out in black and white on my report. Yeah, here's the things that I'm strong at and all oh, here's the things that I'm weak at. And yeah, that, that matches up with my annual review. Um, and I, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm an INTP. Okay. So, um, as, as Margie has told us, that means I have preferences for introversion, intuition, thinking, and perception. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of, I work through all of those and see how they apply to my life that I've lived and how they've uh, hindered me and how they've helped me. And, and it's funny because every single person that I've ever told about my preference for introversion immediately pushed back on me. Hmm. No, that's not you. You're not an introvert. I mean, I'm not shy. I'm a take charge guy at work. I lead meetings. I make presentations up. doesn't matter. Upper management, a hundred field guys uh, out in the field. I present at conferences. Uh, I'm into agriculture uh, and beekeeping. I've given countless beekeeping presentations, uh, 300 experienced beekeepers. I stand up there and talk to them. Um, I'm the cut up in any group. So how does that fit with preference for introversion? Well, you know, as we know from Margie, mm -hmm. doing that wears me out. I mean, it just exhausts me. I'll run a one hour meeting with our upper management. And when I walk out of it, I need a dark hole to crawl into. I mean, <laughs> I'm exhausted. And we go to conferences. My default is to beg off the evening and hang out in my room, read a book. Mm -hmm. um, now, I can be the life of the party, but it's not my default. And it, it takes a lot out of me. And recognizing this has, has forced me to be deliberate about socializing more than I want to because there's value to it. You know, the socialization, the connections that you make, the relationships you build with people. So much of that happens at times when I didn't want to be involved because I didn't feel like it. But it's not that I can't do it. And it's not that I don't have fun. It's just that I had to make myself do it. So now if I go to evening events, I schedule myself for them. I put them on my calendar and my inner voice will be throwing up excuses right up to the last minute. <laughs> but I have a good time. I do. I might feel a little out of place sometimes. I, I might want to hug the wall and have a drink, but I force myself out. I, if I find someone I know, I talk to them, they introduce me to people. Or I may look around and find someone who looks even more uncomfortable than me and strike up a conversation with them. And my life, personal and professional, is richer for it. I do pay the cost in recuperation time, but you know I know that and, and I and I manage it better, which has made me more of a more of a social person than I ever was. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I it's not that I couldn't, and it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just I didn't go there naturally. And the same thing, you, you look at the two middle ones, intu in, intuition and thinking. I've never been a gut feeling guy. I'm rational and thoughtful to the point that it eh, frustrates most people around me. Um, okay, I'm, I, I'm a grammar nerd. I read Eat Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Truss, and I love the book. So that, that probably, if you're familiar with that book, that gives you an idea of just how bad off I am. Um <laughs> I've spent countless hours in my life questioning myself, my values, trying to find better answers. 
Uh, I did speech and debate in high school. I almost went to law school. Uh, my first major in college was engineering. I mean, it gives you a pretty good idea of just how how strictly in that I am. And my communication with others, particularly if I saw them as wrong, came across as demeaning or insulting. Um, at one of my previous jobs, I actually had the CFO, all five foot six of her, in my office saying she wanted to punch me in the nose. <laughs> And that's really not, you know, a, a great career move there. But <laughs> For either of you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I, I preferred emails, uh, long, detailed emails. Uh, I failed to see nuanced emotions. And sometimes I, I didn't know how to respond when I did see them. Um, I mean, quite frankly, I've told people, I, once I realized this and I saw myself from the outside, I, I almost felt autistic to some degree. You know, I sucked at reading people and, and knowing how to interact with them. And, and that's a skill that I've taught myself the last eight or 10 years. Um, I've read countless books and articles on emotional intelligence, negotiation, persuasion, communication, uh, sales even. And that's a point that I make with, with my guys and my folks in the department here a lot is everything we do is sales. I mean, we're an internal IT department. That means our customers are our company employees. So when I say something like that, they look at me and say, what the heck's that got to do with sales? But the help desk has to sell a caller on an answer that doesn't really fix their problem. Um, IT management has to convince other departments or executives of what we want to do and not do. Otherwise, we're in the driver's, if we want to be in the driver's seat, we have to do that. If not, we're holding on to the rear bumper and wondering what just ran over us. And that's not fun. You know, we have to sell our timelines. We have to sell our milestones, our budgets. I mean, all of that stuff is is really sales. And quite frankly, I wasn't very good at it because I didn't know how to play the game makes it sound trivial. But, you, you know, you had a, a podcast recently on politics mm -hmm. within the office. And the reality is, if you don't understand and appreciate the reality of office politics, then you're on the outside. And, and it's not degrading. It's not cheap or dirty. It's just interpersonal skills and relationships. And I wasn't very good at it. And then lastly was perceiving um, my inclination. I think I heard you and Margie talk about this recently on podcasts is, is you tend to fly by the seat of your pants. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm very much like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm a problem solver, a firefighter, and a long practicing procrastinator. I actually had a, a, a class in one of my, ma in my master's program, I had a class that had a, a massive spec doc for software projects supposed to be working on it the entire semester. I started the week before it was due <laughs> and I got an A. So lesson learned, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I, that, that's reinforced with me over the years. So this was one that, that I really struggled with a, a lot because spontaneity and creativity is important in a group, particularly in a dynamic field like IT. But I realized a few years ago that as a group, we were burning ourselves out because we were living completely reactively. We were at the whims of everyone else. We didn't set our own schedules. We didn't set our own priorities and we can, we just didn't. So now uh, we, we started out being a little more deliberate about our annual goals. And then we turned that into a project list. So now we have a department project list that as a group, we put together every late fall, early winter, we tie our annual budget to that. So we make sure we've got money in there for the projects we want to do. And if there's a project comes up that we didn't budget for, then we have to make a call as to whether we cancel something else and move that money. That, that forces us to be um, 
honest and deliberate about what we do and when we do it. And I spent a few years enforcing the process, both internally on our department and from those outside who makes requests of us. Um, I think it was pretty counter to the natural inclinations of most of the department, because as I said, I hired a whole bunch of me's. Uh, but our life in the department's really better because of it, mine and the whole department. Um, and we're actually, we've actually gotten to a point now where we're stepping back and saying, are we too focused on project rigidity? And do we still allow enough room to deal with the day-to-day issues that come up? I mean, I, I think we're we're in a pretty good place, but that's a discussion we're having because we've actually gotten so committed to our defined project work, which was not our nature pretty much across the board in the department. Well, you know, I'm thinking about your journey here back to developing leadership skills. And what you didn't say is I went to these classes and I took this graduate program. What you said is you you got to know yourself through the use of these Absolutely. personality instruments. And, you know, you'd mentioned emotional intelligence earlier. And you're right. We, we, we really like that concept, but it be, all begins with knowledge of self. So mm-hmm. so for the person listening to this podcast today. James is onto something here. And, you know, he had referenced the earlier podcast with Margie Bush. That is actually number 33. If you need it, she offers to do one of these Myers-Briggs type indicator and you get one hour of phone time where she can debrief it. So it worked for James to get that self-awareness. It will work for you. And you will suddenly realize, wow, I didn't know I was this way. And, And I love the fact that you admitted you hired a bunch of views because you understand yourself better. But well, I'll tell you what, uh, and you could talk to Lisa, who you've probably talked to already. She would tell you, I am. That preference for perceiving with me drives her crazy. And thank God she <laughs> is a note person. And so uh-huh. it, it's it's a great lesson. Do that. And and a lot of this stuff is going to come a lot easier for you. Now, yes. now let, me, let me ask you this. Now, so you've talked about developing yourself. Let's talk about how you develop your employees. Mm-hmm. So... Um, one of the most important things that particularly new supervisors don't understand or appreciate or even are are perhaps afraid of is they have to make room for their people to make mistakes. Uh, If you can't make a mistake, if you can't be wrong, then you can't learn. Um, Sometimes mistakes are painful and our jobs as supervisors, uh, as managers, is to um, pad the edges so that you have a, a safe space where you can still uh, make mistakes and learn from them, but you know you, you didn't burn the building down or, or blow something up. And it's it's hard to even convince a lot of supervisors that, that that's okay, that that's the way it should be. Um, even once you convince them of it, it's another thing sometimes to get them to actually allow themselves to follow through on it because you're, you're taking someone who is trying to accept that they're now responsible or they're, they're now um, going to be judged on how someone else does their work. And now I'm telling you, you got to be cool with letting them make mistakes. So, you know, that, that, that can be a hard sale, but if your people are afraid to make mistakes, then they'll never push the boundaries. They'll never push the envelopes. They'll never try anything new. They'll never see um, what they can do. If, you know, if we flip the switch, what happens? And there has to be some of that. If you want to be productive, if you want to be growing, if you want your people to develop and learn new things and be stronger, it has to happen. Um, I also, as I mentioned, I I serve as a, uh, as a buffer between my people 
and my boss. And that's another uh, approach, I guess, that my managers have trouble with. Uh, I have a manager who uh, last year um, had an issue with some of his people and they went back and forth on an email thread that included me. And, and, and he basically, you know, called him out for not doing some stuff. And they were very much aware that I was on that thread. And, you know, I, I sat him down later and said, you shouldn't have done that in front of me. And for him, he, he's a, he's a honest, dependable, great guy. His heart's in the right place. And he looked at me and said, I, I don't understand why I would keep this from you. And I said, if you want me to know about it, that's fine, but it can't be in the same conversation where you're telling them about it. You have to have that conversation with them. You have to make sure that they know that conversation with them. Now, if it's something I need to know about, then bring it to me later and we'll talk about it. But in this scenario, I don't even need to know about it. Somebody made a mistake, you're dealing with it. That's all I need to know. And you need to know that I do the same thing up the chain with my boss. If it's important, he knows about it. If, if it's not that important, then I deal with it and he's comfortable that I do. That, that's, that's all that has to happen. Um, I guess beyond that, training and coaching, you know, you stress this on your, uh, on your podcast regularly. And, um, you know, I, I try to encourage my folks to go to training as much as they can. And something that, that I've tried to do more deliberately the last few years, and, and I'm trying to encourage my managers to do with their people, is individual coaching. Um, one-on-one sessions with their people where they get to know more about them. They learn about what they want to do, where they want to, you know, whether it's a one-year plan or a five-year plan, where do they see themselves? Um, you know, I have a few folks in the department that are near retirement, but I have some people that are, you know, in their thirties and where do, where do they want to be in five years? Do they want to be doing this job? Do they want to do a different job in the department? Do they not even want to be in this state in five years? I mean, I want to know that. And quite frankly, I want to support them however I can. If I if I train them and develop them to be a great employee in five years from now, they go find another job in a state they want to live in that pays them more money, more power to them. I'm glad I helped them out. I mean, it sucks for us, but I want to, I care about my employees and I want to make them into the best people that I can. I mean, you know, like I said, I've got four kids and, and there's a lot of overlap between parenting and being a good department manager. And, and that sometimes, even, even when this guy's the same age as my dad, I still sometimes see him as one of my kids that I'm trying to help him advance and do what he needs to do. Um, and, and that kind of ties into what I already said about showing them that I care, that I'll be there for them, that, that I got their back. But on the flip side of that, they're held to their commitments and to my expectations of them. You know, back to that whole uh, you know, wuss mm-hmm. conversation of earlier, if you tell someone this is what has to be done, this is when I expect it to be done and they don't do it and you don't follow up, then you've said that's okay. You said it's cool for them to not do what you ask and to, to not follow through with their commitments. So whether it's a an informational talk where you find out why it didn't happen or it's a coaching talk so you help them next time uh, work through this process or tell them, you know, come to me earlier, whatever it is. It can't be ignored. You have to follow up on it. You have to make sure that they understand that uh, you expect them to meet their commitments. And um, and then, you know, like I say, you learn from it and they learn from it to make sure that um, if it was a skill gap or a, a knowledge gap on processes or 
they didn't trust bringing it to you. They didn't want to be the bearer of bad news. You know, all of those kind of issues, you, you talk them through and, and they learn from it. And sometimes so do you. And then finally, reward their successes. Um, it's, it's very easy, uh, even in a department of, of me plus 11, uh, for the number of things we do to take for granted the successes and kind of let them pass by with a, you know, attaboy or pat on the back. But um, we do try to make efforts uh, to at least recognize people when we complete a project or someone does something good. Um, you know, sometimes we'll go out for lunch or, or something like that. Um, you know, we, anything we can do to, if you read research, you'll see that uh, money is a very low indicator on uh, what actually motivates people. Uh, it's, it really comes down to being appreciated uh, being uh, the master of your own domain, so to speak, being able to control uh, what you do and how you do it. And that's something that we very much try to empower our people uh, to do. And then when they do a great job, we make sure they know it. I love your developmental approach because what you're, it sounds like you're doing is you're just making sure people are doing their job, but you're paying attention and they're learning as they go. But it's not like you're taking a bunch of extra time. And I think that's where a lot of our audience gets confused. Like, you know, when am I going to have time to do my job when I'm trying to get everybody to do theirs? And then you start to realize, okay, that is the job. And you're right. You're yeah, not exactly. wearing the cape anymore. You are, uh, you've got a lot of people you've got to manage. So with that said, and my last question for you, James, is this one. You've spent 45 minutes or so telling us about all these things that got to get done. And yet we all have lives outside of work. So how do you balance drive an achievement with health and happiness? Well, I'll say uh, up until six months ago, obviously I sucked at it because uh, I had a health issue this past year um, that actually had me out of work almost three months. And uh, my whole life I had been, uh, you know, the overachiever. I, I can, anything I set my mind to, I can do it. So um, as of last year, we had four kids uh, that we homeschooled. The oldest one was getting ready to go to college, and uh, he and mom were, as you can imagine, having some uh, challenges mm -hmm. with uh, the changes that happens at that age. And my oldest daughter uh, was 15, and she had hit that point where most of her communication with me was uh, eye rolls and size. <laughs> and uh, then we had the two younger ones who were in grade school, and, uh, and you know, homeschooling is is quite a bit of effort. And you know, my wife stays home with them, but um, I, I get involved in that quite a bit too. A few years ago, my dad had a heart attack, and then two years ago, he had a stroke. And uh, we live on a farm, so uh, he had cattle, and I had cattle, and suddenly I was responsible for all of it. Uh, I had started raising pigs a few years ago, and two pigs. I grew to 40 <laughs> pigs in like two years. So uh, I have honeybees. I was the president of our state beekeepers association, uh, president of the board, and uh, president of our local association as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the list just kept going. And, um, I, I thought I was doing it all and plus work, you know, I mean, I had all the things going on here at work, the projects I was managing, um, trying to get started on an MBA perhaps last year. And, um, I came to work one day and I felt, um, almost confused, dizzy, had trouble concentrating. Um, uh, actually on, on my way home, driving home that day, I almost stopped and called my wife cause I was afraid I couldn't keep it together well enough to drive home. And, um, the next few days were ups and downs. Uh, I was one day I realized that I went to the third floor and walked to the wrong end of the building and didn't remember why I walked to that end of the building. Um, 
I wasn't, my sleep patterns changed completely. I started having headaches. So, um, they took, I think it was about 42 quarts of blood out of me for blood hmm. tests. <laughs> and, uh, I saw a neurologist, you know, had the EEG, I had a CAT scan. Um, I saw a rheumatologist and, and had a lot of work done there. At one point they were thinking maybe lupus or something. And, um, after about two and a half months of that, I still had nothing other than a vitamin D deficiency. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm off work. I spend most days laying in the bed. I don't feel like doing anything. And, um, uh, it was actually a conversation with my neurologist. He said, you don't have a neurological problem that, that, that we can find. Uh, have you thought about maybe a sleep study or, uh, seeing someone about depression? I said, I don't have depression. Um, you know, <laughs> I handle everything. I'm a happy, outgoing guy. I don't have anxiety issues. Um, so, you know, let's, let's try the sleep uh -huh. study. And, and the reality is I've struggled with sleep problems my whole life. I, I lay in bed for 45 minutes to an hour and my mind just runs constantly. I can't shut it down. And uh, there's nights where I wake up two, three o'clock in the morning, can't go back to sleep. I'll go to the living room or something. And um, so I had a sleep study and I had mild sleep apnea, nothing too bad. Um, but I decided to go see a, a psychiatrist and, uh, I spent the whole day with a psychiatrist and at the end of it, he said, cause they were even considering maybe, you know, cognitive decline, uh, onset dementia, early onset dementia mm -hmm. or something. And he said, you got no cognitive problems, but I, I see, uh, from everything you've told me, you have unbelievable stress and that's caused depression and anxiety. And, you know, of course, uh, initially I didn't even want to accept it because I, I knew that, I mean, I, I handle problems fine. I, I don't, I don't sweat the small stuff, but the reality was my, my personality type, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a very social person. Uh, I'm, I'm very introspective. Uh, I didn't have very many people I talked to. So for the most part, I dealt with most problems and what I didn't just got shoved down inside and forgotten about until they weren't forgotten about with all the problems with my family, all the things going on at home, stresses at work. I apparently reached a boiling point last year, uh, and it, it was like I had a fracture in my brain. Um, I, it just it stopped working right, and uh, within two weeks uh, of seeing the psychiatrist, um, I was back to work. It was it was amazing. Once I accepted that as a possibility, I went to work on it and started pulling stuff off my plate. Started working on my sleep patterns. Started making myself get up and get engaged. No medication. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, uh, I didn't need any, uh, I needed someone to talk to me and tell me how crazy I've been. And, um, I got back to work in a few weeks and I've continued to shed stuff. Uh, we went, got rid of all the pigs, uh, got rid of all the cows. Um, and we, we've changed uh, how we do some of the stuff at home. My oldest son has moved out of an apartment, uh, is going to school full time and, and lives about an hour and a half away now. So, uh, yeah, that comes with its own challenges, but they're, they're probably, less numerous than when he was at the house mm -hmm. every day. <laughs> and, uh, uh, things have gotten better with my daughter too. She's, she's now 16 and, um, seems to have moved out of that stage. And, uh, it's, uh, but for me, it was, it was really a wake up call of, of, I'm not, I'm not immortal. My, my plate is not infinite. You know, I put so much stuff on the plate and eventually stuff started falling off and I didn't know what to do about it. And, uh, I had to step back and, and evaluate priorities. So, um, uh, just recently, uh, my grandmother's 87 and she's been struggling 
uh, with some dementia issues and we moved her in with us recently. So as you can mm. imagine, um, 87 year old grandma in with, uh, with the kids, uh, that brings its own challenges. Uh, but you know, first thing I did was resign from the board of the beekeepers association mm -hmm. because that's not a priority versus this. And I only have so much space in my day. Um, I've gotten much better at saying no to things that I want to do, um, challenges that I think I could take on and focusing on the priorities and, uh, feel a lot better for it. Um, I, I tell you, I had two employees in the 13 years that I've been here that have had in retrospect, uh, obviously stress related health issues, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't stressing them overtly. I wasn't saying, get this done or you're going to get beaten, but we just had so much going on and I wasn't providing them the support they needed that they, they didn't deal with it well either. So that was, I mean, that, that's something a lot of people don't, don't take into account until they go through it. And then the other problem is so many people see this as shameful or something that, that you can't talk about. You know, I, I had some depression, I had some anxiety, I, I didn't deal with stress well, that that's that comes with the territory and until you know how to deal with the stress until you know how to deal with your sleep issues then you're just going to get worse and it's just so frustrating to me that the people don't want to talk about it well i am glad that you chose to talk about it and and truthfully i've never had anybody on the show that was really that self-disclosing but it seems to me there's probably at least one person out there who's listening to this that says wow and here, I thought it was something else. So, you know, it goes back to what you said, James, about how do you develop your leadership skills? You get to know yourself better. And I think you've gone even deeper. And as a guy that is rightfully starting to downsize on commitments and responsibilities, I am grateful that you decided you could give us an hour of your time for our show. I know it's the end of your workday. And James, I think yep. truthfully of all the guests I've had on this show, and I've had, well, I guess you're 35 now. Uh, this is probably, I think, going to be probably one of the most valuable episodes because it's from the boss I to the so. boss. And uh, I, I really uh, want to just tell you how happy I am and how grateful I am for you to spend the time with me today. So, James. Uh, Mac, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you. No, it on. was great. And uh, for anybody that is, again, interested in Myers-Briggs for self-awareness, check out episode 33. And James, Best of luck as you continue what is absolutely going to be a journey and uh, just making everything go well for yourself. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast. You know, if you're listening to these as you are commuting to and from work, I would highly recommend you listen again when you get home just so you can take some notes. We do our best to get you great information. And sometimes if you're like me, you got to write the stuff down. On another note, for your further development, if you work for an organization and you think that it would be valuable to partner with us, which I think is a good idea, we invite you to check us out online at thebossbuilders.com. We have three options, our signature driving results on-site workshop, which our trainers come out and deliver for you. We also have our very popular Boss Builder Academy, which is video driven. And we also offer the option of having your organization license our training materials so that your trainers can go ahead and deliver them on-site. If you're listening to our podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, the other thing we'd appreciate is if you could just take a moment and leave us a brief, positive, of course, review. That would really help us out a great deal. And refer this podcast to anybody you know that you think could benefit from it. 
Until the next time we meet, get out there, boss up, boss on, and more importantly, make a commitment to being the boss at being a great boss. Goodbye.